When Jesus had said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. And so he asked to ask him again. Uh, he says, I, I told you that I am he. Come, come get me. And so they do it a second time and he allows them to come forward and, and get him. But the, it, what's interesting is that as we were singing that song, I just saw that passage and it's the he is added. It's literally Jesus just said to them, I am. So we just sing about, I am. Um, he, Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the living God. Uh, and it's the power of his name that makes darkness, no matter what it is, makes it fall backwards. Um, and the part of the good news of the gospel is just not that Jesus has done for us all that we could not do for ourselves, but also that it's only received by faith. And the Bible says that in different ways, but one of the ways the Bible says it is that simply all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whatever your situation is this morning, maybe you don't know where you're going to spend eternity. Call upon the name of Yahweh, of Jesus, the great I Am, and you will be saved. But even if you know him as your Savior and there's a situation that's, that's pressing in on you, um, again, it, it's, not, it's not magic. I'm not saying that everything's just going to go away instantly. It might be difficult. I understand that there's battles and there's trials that God allows us to go through. But the way that you will get through it is by calling upon the great I Am, as we just sang. Amen? It's always the same. It's always the same. We call upon him. Salvation is found in no other name. So, Father, we thank you this morning that you're good. We thank you that you are here. We thank you that your Holy Spirit desires to bring deliverance and freedom this morning into our lives for all those who call upon you in faith. And so, Father, we just turn our eyes towards you this morning, the great I Am. We pray that you would bless our time in your word. We pray that you would strengthen our hearts. Pray, Lord, that you would set us free from the enemy without, but also the bondage to sin uh, that we feel so strongly within at times. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. If you got your Bibles, grab them. Go to the book of Judges. Or if you're from Holmes County, the book of Judges. That was not like, I don't even know where that stuff comes from sometimes. And I probably should like, why? I literally said that. I was like, oh, I'm going to say that. And I was like, eh, probably not a good idea. Anyway. But I'm glad that you laughed. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd have felt worse. Um, go, go to the book of Judges. We were in chapters 1 and 2 this past week in our Bible reading plan. For the, we will be looking at most of it, but we'll be focusing in on different parts just for the sake of time. Um, it, let me just jump right in, and we will kind of read this as we, as we go along this morning. But... One of the reasons that I believe the Word of God to be true, um, there are technical reasons that I believe God's Word to be true, but one of the more just broad reasons that I believe the Word of God to be true is because it is so raw and it is so relevant. It is raw and relevant. And by raw, what I mean is the Bible does not shrink back from the griminess and the grittiness and the darkness of humanity, and not just of humanity, but even of God's people, and even of the heroes of the faith. Friday and Saturday, we had the men's retreat this past week down at Camp Warsaw, and one of the people that we looked at on Friday evening was, was Peter, the Apostle Peter. And we talked about his great failure, and how um, 
on the night that Jesus was arrested, uh, he had followed him for three years. He'd seen all the miracles. He'd heard all the teaching, and he'd heard the teaching uh, unpacked and explained in, in private. He saw miracles that other people didn't get to see. He saw Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration and appeared in his glory, and yet when it came down to it, he, uh, he denied him even with curses, saying that he doesn't know him. Um, and the book of Judges is kind of like that. It's a, it's a dark time. It's a time of great failure in the history of God's people. Uh, it's very raw. It's also very relevant. Um, and it's primarily relevant because it is raw, because it is real, because we need something real, amen? Uh, the Bible, it, it, sometimes people say that, you know, we need to work to make the Bible relevant. Folks, the Bible is relevant. It's extremely relevant. We don't have to make it relevant. When we understand it, there's nothing that could be more relevant and more, and more needed in our lives. Um, and what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, uh, kind of between now and Christmas, we're not going to get through the whole book, but we're just going to be kind of reading along in it and touching along the way, touching at some different points along the way. But the big idea that we're going to come back to over and over again is what happens to God's people when they stop living like God's people. What happens to God's people when they stop living like God's people. And this was true in the Old Testament. The, um, the book of Judges is the primary place where you, where you find this. But uh, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, you'll remember that we just came out of the book of First and Second Thessalonians. And one of the things that Paul touches on in the book of Second Thessalonians, primarily chapter 2, is that in the last days before Christ comes back, there's going to be what's called a great apostasy or a great rebellion, a great falling away of people who, who profess to know God but don't actually know him in their hearts. And they're going to fall away. The Bible calls that apostasy. And in the book of Judges, you have the same thing. You have the apostasy of God's people falling, falling away. And so what I want to look at specifically this morning, um, and especially in regards to that question, what happens to God's people when they stop living like God's people, is I just simply want to ask the question, how does this happen? How does this happen? And I hope that um, it's, a, it's instructive for us and we can gain wisdom from it. Because the book of Judges is pretty much a cautionary tale of what happens to God's people when they stop living like God's people. And so I just want to ask the question, how does that happen? And then what is our hope? And what must we do? To give you a little bit of an overview, Derek, can I get that outline of the, uh, of the book? Again, this is real basic, and we're just summarizing the whole book here just in, in a few points, but especially to show you where we're at this morning. The primary meat of the actual book of Judges actually starts in chapter 3, verse 7. That's where uh, the first judge um, comes on the scene, uh, and then you've got these 12 judges throughout the book, uh, the last one being Samson, who probably most people are most familiar with uh, when we talk about the judges. He's probably the most famous of the judges. But in chapters 1 and 2... Um, uh, I don't, usually when we start a new book, I kind of preach the passage, but I also give kind of an introduction to the book. But chapters one and two are the introduction to the book, okay? And the introduction to the book is broken into two different parts. In chapter one, verse one, starting from the very beginning, excuse me, um, through, and that shouldn't say three, six, that's my fault. That should say chapter two, verse six. Uh, or, yeah, or no, I'm sorry, that part's right. But in chapter, in chapter one, one, through chapter two, verse five, you have the, the account of the earthly activity of God's people. And it's, it's about how they go in and they conquer the land, but they, don't, they, but they don't do it fully. And then in chapter 2, 6 through 3, 6, you have divine commentary on that historical account 
of the activity that they did. So I don't know if you guys noticed this or not as you were reading it this past week, if you were uh, reading it carefully, but did you notice that in just a casual reading, it seems like Joshua dies twice? Did you notice that? Anybody notice that? Yeah, and you're like, what's going on? Well, it's because chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, 5 is the earthly activity or the historical account, and then it resets in chapter 2, verse 6 through 3, 6, and it's giving then divine commentary on that activity. Does that make sense? So in like chapter 1, verse 1, it says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites and fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given them into his hand. And then it has all the accounts of them going in and, and kind of um, taking over the land, but not uh, thoroughly as they were supposed to. And then if you, chapter 2, verse 6, it says, When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and, all the, and of all the elders who outlived Joshua and who had seen the great work that the Lord had done. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years old. Those verses are almost taken verbatim from Joshua, not Judges, but Joshua chapter 24. Okay, And so what the author is doing is, he's, it's kind of like a movie, when you're going to enter into this movie at a certain place, but first it kind of gives some backstory over here, and then you got to go back uh, maybe to the beginning or to a later you know, place in time. Um, but that's what's happening here in the book of Judges. But the whole thing together serves as an introduction to this book. Are you following me? And again, the thing that we're going to hit on again and again and again is what happens to God's people when they stop living like God's people? And the answer is, the book of Judges happens. <laughs> it's not good. It's a, it's a dark time. But let's get into this, and again, let's begin to ask the question, how does this happen? How does it happen that God's people, uh, at different seasons and times in their life, and it, the same can happen for us as a church, as God's people, the same thing can happen in our individual lives. How does this happen that we stop living like God's people? There's three primary, primary things. The first one is the biggest one, and it is the domino that sets into motion everything else. And that is, they fail to honor God's word. Always, 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 you can count on it, take it to the bank. When the people of God begin to do dumb stuff, it's because we fail to keep the word of God central in our lives. Look at chapter 2. Again, those verses, verses 6 through 10, I read some of them. But in verse 8, it says, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years old. They buried him within the boundaries of the inheritance at Timnaheris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their father. So there's Joshua, there's the generation that served with him, but also outlived him a little bit. But then middle of verse 10, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done in Israel. And now this failure to honor the word of God, it works in two different ways. It works in that the older generation, I don't believe, did everything that they could have, although they did some things, but they did not do everything that they could have to teach the next generation the ways of God, but also that that next generation did not receive the word of God in the way that they should. To put it another way, what you have here in this failure to honor God's word is a failure to make disciples who make disciples. 
It is a failure to embrace the mission that God has given to pass down the truth of who he is and what he has done, the good news of the gospel to the next generation. It happens in our day, and it happened way back then. This is always the story of the people of God, that we fail to honor the word of God. Let me run through and give you some history very quick. So again, in the, in the history of Israel, God brings them out of Egypt by the blood of the lamb on Passover night. Moses leads them out. He takes them to Sinai. He wants to take them right into the promised land, but they don't have faith. They see there's giants there. And even though God had done all these crazy miracles in Egypt, they say, oh no, these, the giants are too big and we're like grasshoppers in their eyes. They forget very quickly all that God had done for them. And so God causes that generation to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. When the last person of that generation dies, God then kills Moses as well, doesn't allow him to take the people into the promised land, raises up Joshua. Joshua leads the people into uh, the promised land and they have come in Okay, and they've now established themselves, but there are still enemies, there are still pockets of resistance throughout the land. So they're now in the land, the initial kind of conquest is over, but there are still pockets of resistance throughout the land of the enemies of God, resisting the ways of God and the teaching of God and the law of God. And it is God's will that they completely drive out all the enemies because this is their land, this is their inheritance, this is what God has for them. And throughout Israel's history during that time of coming out of Egypt, Moses said it, Joshua says it, that the way to go forward in victory is to keep the word of God central. Moses said it in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, they should be all over us, all around us. What? The commands, the promises, the law of God. Later on, he says, you shall not go, uh, Moses says, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you. And how would they do that? By honoring the word of God. God tells Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, he says to Joshua, now that Moses is, is dead, he says, be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law, listen, this book of the law, which again, just for our context, it is the Bible. It's the, the law that they had, the, their Bible. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And notice that he says there, it shall not depart from your mouth. What does that mean? We're to be constantly speaking it. We're to be constantly reciting it, memorizing it, meditating on it, as he says there. And one of the ways that we meditate on it is we speak it out loud to ourselves, to others, to each other that we may go forward in the victory that he has. Joshua, and again, you'll probably just have to flip a page or two over in your Bible, but in Joshua chapter 23, right before Joshua dies, he gives two different charges, one to the leaders of Israel and then to the nation of Israel himself. In Joshua chapter 23, to the leaders of the nation of Israel, he says, when the Lord had, or it says, when the Lord had given them rest, uh, 
had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God has promised you. But verse 6, therefore be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, i.e. the Bible, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or swerve by them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done this day. How do, we, how do we cling to the Lord himself? By clinging to his word. That's how it happens. Again, one more place in Joshua chapter 24. Joshua gives the same kind of charge to now the whole nation of Israel, not just the leaders, as he did in chapter 23, and there's that famous verse in Joshua chapter 24, many of you might have this on like a, I don't know, like a painting or a little wall hanging or something uh, that goes in your house, um, or that you hang in your house, and he says, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river and the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A few verses later in Joshua 24, and I know I'm reading a lot of Bible, hang with me, I'm almost done, okay? Joshua chapter 24, verse 24. The people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes, statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took, and get, get what he's doing here. He took a large stone and set it up there underneath the terebinth tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. So understand what, what that's saying. Is Joshua says, listen, you've got to dwell in the word of God. Just like God had charged him to be strong and courageous, Joshua gives the same charge to the people and the leaders at the end of the life, at the end of his life. He says, You've got to dwell on the word of God if you're going to be victorious and cling to the Lord God. You've got to cling to his word. And he takes this stone and he builds this monument as a as a reminder to the people throughout history that they said, Yes, we will serve the Lord. We're going to cling to his, we're going to cling to him by clinging to his word. Yet it didn't happen. Now I say all that because I said that it seems like going back to Judges chapter 2 verse 10 and this new generation that comes on the scene that doesn't know the Lord, it's not like nothing had been done. Joshua charged them. Joshua set a monument and yet we don't know. There also seems to be some failure on the part of the priests and on the part maybe of the fathers primarily, to really teach it diligently to their children as Moses had commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And yet most certainly, we also have an issue with that next generation not honoring the word of God. 
and not receiving it as they, as they should have. And this is always the issue, is does the word of God have supremacy? Is it central to everything that you do in every area of your life? And folks, you, you gotta think specifically about your own life right now because it's not enough just to own a Bible. And many of us probably own more than one Bible and several Bibles and we've got them on our phone and we've got them on our iPads or our devices or whatever. But are you dwelling, are you meditating on the law of God day and night to a place where you are in the word until the word gets into you? Because only then will we go forward in victory. So what happens in Judges chapter one is, and again, this is a very brief overview, we just don't have time, it starts out okay. You've got the nation of Judah, and you've got Caleb, remember Joshua and Caleb? Caleb is like one of the, one of the OGs, you know, one of the old, old, old good guys from that last generation. They start off and they go in and they begin to conquer, but then it begins to just fall off a little bit, and the different tribes don't go in and, uh, and take uh, uh, full possession of the land as God uh, had instructed them. And then, at the beginning of chapter 2, after they don't do this, after they don't drive out the nations the way that they were supposed to, chapter 2, verse 1, the angel of the Lord comes to them. And we don't have a ton of time to unpack all of this, but this is the pre-incarnate Jesus. In the Old Testament, it sometimes will speak of an angel of the Lord, but then there's the angel of the Lord. Um, and there's different places in Exodus chapter 3, Joshua chapter 5, where the angel of the Lord shows up, and the way that we know that it's Jesus is because Moses and Joshua, they fall down and they worship him. And in other places, when it's just an angel, the angels will say, don't, don't, don't do that, don't do that. Worship God. This is the pre-incarnate Christ showing up in the form of the angel of the Lord. And in 2.1 it says, he says, I brought you up. I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Then he says, what is this you have done? You see, they did not honor the word of God. And notices, notice there that he reminds them about their salvation. He reminds them about coming up out of Egypt. Egypt is a picture of our salvation. I said earlier that we're delivered by the blood of the lamb, the better lamb, Christ. That's how we pass through death into life, into all that God has for us. And he reminds them, he reminds them about this. And here's kind of the, the, the progression. When we forget his word, we will always forget the gospel. And when we forget the gospel, we forget about his grace. And we, when we forget about his grace, listen, we will always forget about who gets the glory. It's not you and I. It is by grace that we are saved through faith, and this is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not by works. Why? So that no one will boast. But where you find boasting, where you find self-aggrandizement that happens not just in the world but again amongst the people of God making much of men can always be assured that they've set aside the word of God and so they've forgotten about the gospel, they've forgotten about his grace and they forgot who all the glory belongs to. Um, you see how the word of God is 
relevant, even though this was written like 1,400 years, or this, this took place, I should say, about 1,400 years before Jesus even came. It's the same story, folks, over and over and over again of the people of God either going forward into the purposes that God has for them in their generation or falling by the wayside and living in bondage because they failed to honor God's word. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Is that true of your life this morning? Let me, this is a, uh, this is like a little survey study that uh, the Center uh, for Bible uh, Engagement compiled, and you're like, there's a thing called the Center for Bible Engagement? Yes, apparently. Um, they did it along with uh, Lifeway Christian Research, um, I believe, and again, sometimes these studies and statistics, I kind of go, eh, yeah, okay, I mean, that's basically already what the Word of God said, but just listen, this is somewhat interesting. They did a study of over 40,000 people ranging from age 8 to age 80, okay? And they wanted to see how people were engaging in the scripture. And they bumped into something that they thought was was pretty interesting. As they compiled the results, um, they found that when people would engage the word of God just once a week, and that would even include a pastor standing up and saying, hey, grab your Bibles and turn to so-and-so. If you just did that, it, it really made no effect in your life. If people would get in the Bible twice a week, there was still little to no effect in their lives. If someone got into the Bible three times a week, you would see a little bit of an impact in terms of hope and victory and over sin and, th- and things like that, but still not a ton. But for whatever reason, here was the thing that they thought was so interesting. When somebody got into the Bible at least four times a week, at least four times a week, then they saw a huge uptick in their spiritual life. Here's the per- And again, these per- this is where I kind of, sometimes percentages, you got to hold them loosely. I don't know exactly how you quantify this. But they said that when, in these 40,000 people that they surveyed, when someone was getting into the Bible at least four times a week, their feelings of loneliness dropped by 30%. Their issues with anger dropped by 32%. Bitterness in relationships dropped by 40%. Alcoholism dropped by 57%. Sex outside of marriage drops by 68%. Feeling spiritually stagnant dropped 60%. Viewing pornography dropped by 61%. Sharing your faith with others jumps by 200%. And discipling others jumps by 230%. Now let me be abundantly clear. I don't think the takeaway is get into the Bible four times a week. I think the takeaway is get into the Bible every single day. Meditate upon it day and night. But the point being is that there's a way to engage the Bible yet not actually engage the Bible. Are you with me? There's a way to just kind of skim it and and read it. And then there's a way to get into it until it gets in to you. And brothers and sisters, again, I I know you you might be sitting there right now and you're you're like, Eric, this this is some pretty basic stuff. Well, here's the question that I have for you. Do you do it? Do you do this? Because I know I still have 
sin that I'm dealing with in, in my own life, and when I trace it back, it's not always a mystery. And I meet with a lot of people that have issues in their life. And yeah, sometimes there's need for, there's need for um, counseling and maybe to lay hands and to, and to pray and, um, and to talk through some different things in your, in your life. Like, like, I believe in all that, but all those things are not the epicenter of where change comes from. Change comes by the Spirit of God taking the Word of God and having it dwell richly in His people. And when we do this, we are able to go forward in victory. And again, I, I just think we, I think we try to make it more complicated than this. I think we want to talk about Sometimes spiritual warfare, and hey, the Bible talks about that, and it's real, and the devil's real, and his, his, his demons are real, and they're out to steal, kill, and destroy, 100%. But it's not ultimate. The Word of God gives us victory over these things. In fact, let me just give you a, another little kind of side reason here. This isn't really one of my main points. But look at, at Judges chapter 2, verse 19. Now, it's been talking about how God will raise up a judge for them when they, when, they, when they would cry out after their rebellion. But then in Judges chapter 2, verse 19, it says, But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. And, and get this little line. I love that this is in here. <laughs> it says, They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Can I just make a suggestion this morning? Just, and again, if, the shoe, if not, it's okay. Maybe the issue in your life isn't spiritual warfare. Maybe it's your stubborn ways. Can I get an amen? Maybe. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's not spiritual warfare. Maybe it's not this, this thing that we like to see, this boogeyman that's hiding in our closet. Maybe it's that you're stubborn and you don't get into the word of God until it gets into you. And again, this isn't about legalism. This isn't about earning God's favor. Everything we do is driven by his grace in response to the gospel, in response to the fact that he brought us out of Egypt. But now how are we going to go forward in victory? By meditating upon his word. Okay, next, how does this happen? Again, this is the first domino. You fail to honor God's word. I think there was a failure on the part of the first generation to teach it. Uh, as they should have, as thoroughly as they should have. I also think there was definitely a problem in the next generation to receive it and to honor it the way they should have. But when that domino falls, two do other dominoes are always going to follow. Number one, there will be a failure to worship him as he deserves. And secondly, there will be a failure to fulfill the mission that he desires. There will be a failure to worship him as he deserves and a failure to fulfill the mission that he desires. So look at Judges chapter 2. We'll start in verse 11. And again, this is the part now where we're getting divine or inspired commentary on the, that first historical account or activity of how they did not go in and conquer the land. In chapter 2, verse 11, it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. Verse 12, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods and of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. 
and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, which were two type of idols, and I'll talk a little bit more about those in just a second. If you circle or underline or highlight things in your Bible, I would point out a couple words to you. In verse 11, the word served. In verse 12, the word went after, or some other translations simply say followed, and that's what it literally means. And then also the, the little words bowed down. Served, went after, and bowed down. They were supposed to do this to the Lord. This is how you worship. We serve him. We, it says went after. We follow him, is literally what it means. We follow him, and we bow down to him. But notice here that they were supposed to do this to the Lord, but they're, it's not like they're just doing, it, doing something independent of that. They're still serving. They're still following. They're still bowing down, just not to the person that they're supposed to. Not to the God that they're supposed to, but to these false, these false gods. And see, we think, folks, that we're able to live independently of God, and I'm just going to go do my own thing. Our, listen, our culture values. It's, it's like the air that we breathe. We value independence. And, uh, and, and uniqueness above all else. And we think that we're living differently and that we're in, walking in freedom and we're just living on our own. But in reality, we look just like the world and we're in bondage. You are always going to serve someone or something. You are always going to follow someone or something. You are always going to be bowing down to someone or something. Let's make it Jesus. Because he came and he gave his life for us. And he laid down his life for us when we should have been bowing down to him. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves in going to the cross. Let me ask those questions just a slightly different way. Again, just to help us search our hearts, to kind of um, serve as a light, hopefully, to look into our hearts and see if we're doing this or not. In regards to what you serve, let me just ask it this way. Who do you give your time to? Who or what do you give your time to? Who do you give your money to? That's who you're serving. You can say it's Jesus. But who you give your time to, who you give your money to, who you give your emotional energy to, your thoughts to, that's who you're serving. In regards to, again, going after, they went after or simply followed. Who are you following? Let me ask it this way. Who do you try to imitate? Who are you trying to be like? Who do you hold up as, I, I want to be like this person. This person's successful. This, this, this girl, this man. They're who I want to be like. That's who you're following. Is who you're trying to imitate. In regards to that, that verb of bowing down, it's literally the idea of paying homage to. Let me ask it like this. To who do you give the credit? Who do you give credit to? Do you give credit to the self-help book that you read? Do you give credit to the successful business guru that you learned a little new technique from that helped you whatever? Or, do, or when you boast, do you boast in the cross? in the cross alone. Whenever God's people fail to honor God's word, they will always fail to worship him as he deserves. And again, there's another little clue here. It's a little detail. We won't spend a ton of time on it. But in, the, in Judges chapter one, I read these verses at the beginning. 
Judges chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, they inquire of the Lord when they first go in. Again, they, they kind of start off good, but they, they fall away, which is so true of our lives as well. And they say, who shall go up? And the Lord has an answer. He's just like, ah, whoever, it's fine. No, he has an answer. He says, Judah shall go up first. And Judah goes up, and for the most part, Judah is he's by far more successful than any of the other tribes. Do you know what Judah means? Judah means praise. It means worship. Again, I think it's a picture, again, of how do we go forward in victory. We must honor his word, but we must go forward in worship. Always. We go forward in praising the Lord. And I don't just mean singing songs, although that's part of it. It's what Colossians, what I read earlier from Colossians 3. That singing hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in our hearts to God. It's a state of mind where, guys, I want, us, I, I want for me to come to the place where I'm preoccupied with worshiping Jesus. And other things have to fight for my attention, not the other way around. To where I'm preoccupied with the stuff of this world and then I have to, oh yeah, let's, let's focus on Jesus now. No, let's be preoccupied with him. Let's be preoccupied with worshiping him. Then we can go forward in victory. <clears throat> the second thing, again, as I already said, that follows on the heels of not honoring God's word, not only will we fail to worship him as he deserves, but we will, fail to, we will fail to fulfill the mission that he desires. Again, I've talked about this already, but God's mission for them, that he desired for them, his will for their life, was to go in and was to conquer the land. Look at chapter 1. We'll start in verse 27. And now it's, it's mentioning different tribes. Again, they were all to go forward and have victory and completely drive the enemies of God out of the land that God wanted to give them. Judges 1.27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, Tanakh and its villages, and the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, and the, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. Verse 28, and here's a little clue, verse 28, when Israel grew strong, so Israel's growing strong, like God, God's blessing them. Again, this wasn't on God, it was their fault. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Now understand very practically what's happening here. Is that they're growing strong. If you have the ability in your strength to make a people uh, slaves for you, to force them uh, into labor, as it says here, you also have the ability to drive them out. But the people of Israel made a, made a financial, an expedient financial decision to get the way. They're like, well, let's, you know, God said to drive them out, but we're stronger than them. Let's just, let's make them work for us. That'll be more prosperous. They chose prosperity over obedience. It's what they did. And now you've just got, you're going to have this repetitive phrase, and they did not drive them out, and they did not drive them out, and they forced them into labor. Verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gazar. So the Canaanites lived in Gazar among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron and the inhabitants of Nahalal. The Canaanites lived there among them because of, and, and subject them to forced labor. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Alab or Akzib or Hebla and Afik or Rehob. And by the way, I have no idea if I'm saying those names right, but I'm just gonna say them fast and confidently and just go 
and just go forward. You don't know any difference anyway. Um, Verse 32, so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. That one is fun to say. But you see the pattern? They did not drive them out, and many times they forced them to work for them. That is not what God had commanded. When we fail to honor the word of God, we will then not worship him as he deserves, and we will not fulfill the mission that he has for us. Brothers and sisters, God has called each and every single one of us on a mission to proclaim the gospel and make disciples who make disciples. That we don't get to like make it something else, that's what it is. It's only a question of what does that look like in my life? Who specifically is God calling me to do that with? And don't overthink it. Just start where you're at. For those of you that were at the men's retreat this weekend, this is primarily what we talked about, was fulfilling the Great Commission. See, God still has a promised land that he wants to bring the people of God into. And I know we always think of the promised land as heaven, and it's referenced like that a, a, a little bit in the, in, in the scriptures. Like, I'm not going to deny that, yeah, heaven is the promised land, that's great. But can I point out a couple ways in which that metaphor does not work? Is that in the promised land, there were battles. In the promised land, there were enemies. In the promised land, they had to fight. They had to get up, they had to be strong and courageous and fight. Someday in heaven, our enemy is going to be annihilated. I'm telling you, the promised land that God wants to bring us into is the spirit-filled life where each and every single one of his people lives like the people of God and not like the world. The promised land is for you to live a spirit-filled life, dwelling richly in his word till it dwells in you and going forward, sharing the gospel and seeing lives transformed. That is his will for us, brothers and sisters. That is his will for us. And we need to stop cowering. We need to stop, you know, sitting around talking about how bad the world is. Listen, thousands of years ago, the world was still very bad. I know it's still very bad today. The question isn't about if the world is going to be dark. The question is, are the people of God going to live as light? That's the question. And too many times in the church, because we've not lived in this book and allowed it to live in us, We have become light that is as crazy as this is, makes no sense, but we have become light that is afraid of the darkness. Last time I checked, light does not fear darkness. It doesn't have to. Darkness only has power if the light believes the lie that it can't overcome it. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is Joshua at the end of his life. Again, if you'll see this parallel, it's beautiful. Joshua stands up at the end of his life. He gathers the leaders. He says, go in and take possession of the land fully as God intends. He calls the whole nation of Israel, go in, take possession of the land. Jesus Christ rises from the dead. He gathers his disciples to him. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of, not just a few, all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then he gives this promise. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And yes, I'll admit that it takes the people of God a little bit to get this. But folks, let's get it. Okay? Even in in Acts chapter 1, I mean, here's where you see it again. Again, this was... Maybe sometime after is at the very, very end, before Christ ascends. In Acts chapter 1, something very similar. 
is the disciples come together in Acts 1-6. They say, Lord, are, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom into Israel? And he said, it's, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then he just, he literally gets taken up slowly on a cloud, and the disciples are standing there watching this, and then he disappears, but they don't stop just gazing into heaven. And two angels in Acts chapter 1 are sent to them, and they're like, hey, what's up? Uh, why are you staring into heaven? And they're like, well, uh, I don't know. That's, that's, we're just waiting on Jesus. He goes, did you hear what he said? And they basically say, did you hear what he said? And this is how the people of God are sometimes. We stand there like, God, what do you want me to do? What's your will for my life? He's told us. It's to go and to make disciples. It's to preach the gospel, believing that this message of good news that we have is the power of God unto salvation. It brings dead people back to life. It's not just a message of self-help or self-improvement or self-anything. It's a message that self must die and be crucified, but in Christ Jesus be raised to life. This is what happens, or I should say this is how the people of God stop living as the people of God. They do not honor God's word. They do not worship him as he deserves, and they do not fulfill the mission that he desires. What is the only hope? What is the only hope when this happens? Well, we need a deliverer. We need a deliverer. And that's, again, we don't have time to go into all this, but that's primarily what judge means. We think of judge like somebody who sits with a gavel and a robe and makes rulings. But the idea of judge is simply deliverer. And we didn't just get a judge, we got Jesus. And Jesus came, and he still wants to deliver the people of God and bring them fully into the promised land. If you look in Judges chapter 2, verse 16, it's all because of God's mercy. Verse 16, it says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of that judge, for the Lord, get this, the Lord was moved to pity <laughs> by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. And I, you know, I, this, that, that picture right there of, this, this picture of the people of God not being victorious as God calls them to be, but instead just sitting around groaning, afflicted because of their own sin, because of their own failure to honor the word of God, it's a sad picture, amen? And what's even sadder is, is that on some level, it seems to be true at times and at moments of us now under the new covenant. Who aren't just living under the law, but it seems to be true of us. And I, and I would argue that one of the reasons that, one of the reasons that we can find the same thing to be true of us, where we're just sitting around pitying ourselves and, and groaning, is because we are not living under the new covenant. We're not living as if Jesus has already come 
and been raised from the dead and sent his Holy Spirit and given us his word and made his will clear. We live as though it's under the law and as, as though we're under the law and it's like it's about a bunch of do's and don'ts and it's not about worship, that it's, that it's not about a relationship. I'm convinced that that's why we go forward in, or, or we sit in bondage often. But brothers and sisters, our hope is that God sent Jesus He's the better Ehud, he's the the better Gideon, he's the better Samson. He doesn't just deliver from a season and then die. He died and rose from the dead and he now lives forever to continually deliver his people and to bring us into the promised land of the spirit-filled life and of the victory of the gospel. And please hear me, let me stop for a second. I um, I don't want to assume too much. When when you hear me talking about victory and going forward in victory and and being... uh, uh, victorious and, and conquering and going in to take the promised land. I'm not talking about some ridiculous prosperity gospel message. I'm talking about seeing the gospel go forward and change people's lives. We may have to do that out of poverty. We may have to do that out of losing everything. But even if we do, even if it costs us our life unto death, we can still go forward in victory because the gospel is the same. Jesus is always risen And he promises to help his people when we dwell in his word, worship him as he deserves, and honor the mission, the job that he's given us to do. We're able to go forward. That's what victory looks like. Not only is Jesus the better better judge, but um, he is. Jesus is. He was. (laughs) He is the angel of the Lord. And just as that angel came and reminded them of the covenant that they were under, Jesus comes to bring us into a better covenant. Jesus didn't just deliver us from Egypt and from Pharaoh. He came and he delivered us from the bondage of sin and the devil, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And he said that whom the sun sets free is free what? Yeah. Right? He didn't just say whom the sun sets free is free every now and then. It is for freedom that he has set us free. To know that he's not going to leave us or forsake us. That he's going to continue to take us forward into his will. There's another little image here. Um, again, there's so much in here. These passages, these two chapters are just screaming with, with gospel truth and with good news. After the angel of the Lord comes and he pronounces judgment that he's not going to drive them out because they've been disobedient to his will, um, it says that they wept. Verse 4 of chapter 2, they lifted up their voices and they wept. And they called the name of that place Bokim, which means weepers. Or weeping. And again, it's just such another powerful image of when we, when we allow sin to rule and reign in our life, when we do not honor the word of God and allow it to purify us and cleanse us of sin, um, sin will bring us to the place where weeping isn't just something that we do, it's like a place that we live. And if I can just be honest, it's a, it's a it's a powerful picture of me because at times I, I've been there. I bet you've been there too. And, at t- and I meet a lot of Christians who just live there. 
in constant weeping. And listen here, I'm not talking about, I know there's always going to be attacks outside, and yes, we go forward. I'm, I'm not afraid to, to cry, to weep regularly, and call out to the Lord. But there's a difference between calling out to the Lord because we're under attack from without and sitting in a place like Bokim where weeping just becomes the place that we live simply because we have not been willing to honor the word of God. Do you understand? And Jesus wants to come to deliver us from Bokim, from that place of weeping and turn our sorrow into, into joy. And Jesus here again, portrayed as the angel of the Lord and reminding them of the old covenant. But again, about 1,400 years after this account, Jesus would show up again to the earth, not as the angel of the Lord, but as the lamb of God who is slain for the sin of the whole world. And folks, this is really good news because Specifically, if you sit here this morning in sorrow and in tears and you can identify with, you know what, I'm in Bokim and I'm in Bokim not just because the enemies attack me from without, but I'm in Bokim because of my own sin, because of my own rebellion. In other words, it's self-inflicted. I want to tell you there is hope. There's absolutely hope. Because Jesus came as the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. And that little phrase there, I love what the angel of the Lord says, verse two, he, end, he, he talks about the covenant, and then he says, what is this you have done? But when Jesus comes as the Lamb of God, he doesn't just say, what is this you have done? He says, look at what I did for you. As he's hanging on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So I want to tell you this morning that if, even if you are in pain because of your own sin, you have made some bad choices. You have not honored the word of God. You have not worshipped him as he deserves. You have not been concerned at all about fulfilling his purpose for your life. There is hope in Jesus. Amen? And just where we started out, if you will just call upon him, if you will call upon him, he is merciful, he is gracious, he is compassionate, he will answer. And he did die and he rose and he now lives forever to see you through to the end, to be your judge, to be your deliverer again and again and again until he brings you through to glory. That is the message of the gospel and it is beautiful. Worship team, you can come up and we'll close. The book of Judges ends with a refrain in kind of the epilogue, verses 17 through, or chapter 17 through 21, through the end of the book. And the very last verse of the book of Judges pretty much sums it up. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It says, in those days, everybody say, in those days. Say, in those days, listen. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
But brothers and sisters, in this day, our king has come. Amen? Our king has come. And he wants us, as his people, to go forward in the mission that he has for us. Here's what we need to do. Obey him. Believe him and obey him. And go forward in his victory. Father, thanks for today. Thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that it is so raw. That we identify, Lord, with disobedience. We can all identify with self-inflicted wounds. We can identify with being defeated. We can identify with weeping over our own sin. Lord, I thank you that your word is clear and that there's such hope. That you desire, it has always been your desire to take your people forward in victory on the mission. Victory in the mission that you have for us. And Father, I just pray for us individually. I pray for us as a church. I pray for all your people in this locality, Lord, that know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Father, I pray that you would stir our hearts to live like the people of God. I pray that you would stir our hearts to dwell in your word, to have it dwell richly in us, that there would always be a word of encouragement, of good news, of hope that is on our lips, even when things are difficult, because your word would be so richly dwelling in us. Father, I pray for those that are here this morning and that came in here with a sense of hopelessness. Father, I pray that right now you would pour out your Holy Spirit into their hearts in a fresh and new way and let them know your love. As we stand and sing this song, I pray that we would be able to sing it with one voice as a cry to you to deliver us from the bondage of our own will and our own desires and our own plans and our own purposes from our life, for, for our life. And that we would go forward in your will for us. Thank you for loving us, God. Thank you that we get to be here. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You guys stand with me.